You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. Today, I'm talking to Simon Lydell, a programmer whose open source JavaScript contributions ended up contributing to what might be the most infamous package-related outage in programming history. In addition to talking about that story, we also talk about open source in general, breaking changes in general, and specific projects like CoffeeScript, Prettier, Elm, and Rock. And now, my contribution to the left pad incident. Okay, Simon, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. So as I understand it, you had some involvement in now a notorious incident on the NPM ecosystem known as LeftPad back in 2016. What's the story there? Yeah, so back in 2016, a lot of people woke up with their builds suddenly failing. And it turned out to be that it was like they depended on Babel to compile their JavaScript. And Babel, in turn, depended on a package called LeftPad. Right. And the author of LeftPad had decided to get rid of all of his packages on NPM because of, uh, I don't remember actually exactly what it was anymore, but he was really dissatisfied with the NPM package system. Right. And Yeah, he was upset. I don't remember what he was upset about anymore, but he definitely was like, I don't want my code to be on this package manager anymore. I'm just going to delete it. Yeah, so when I woke up, I checked my GitHub notifications and I was like, what has been going on during the night? Because there were a <laughs> bunch of them, a bunch of comments, and I had a few emails as well. Luckily, at that point, people had already solved the immediate problem. It was, again, possible to install Babel, but it didn't feel good for my part. So someone had opened an issue in a library that I had at the time called line numbers, and line, line numbers num- depended on left pad. What's line numbers do? Yeah, so... Like this is back in 2016 and I had written line numbers in like 2015 when I was a teenager, like 19 years old. Okay. At the time I was working at a warehouse and I had a lot of boring tasks like here's a thousand boxes and I should open each one, take out the lamp inside, put in two screws, put the lamp back in the box and repeat a thousand times. Yeah, fun job. (laughs) (laughs) So I I had a... A lot of time thinking about things and I have had started to learn programming and for some reason I just thought, huh, I would like to make a program that can take a string and put line numbers in front of every line. Mm -hmm. A bit like text editor does. Right. So that night I went home, I wrote the function and for some reason I also decided to publish it to NPM. Okay. Which... In hindsight, I should probably have just deleted the code or put it on GitHub (laughs) or made a blog post, but I'll publish it on NPM. But that's what I did. And this package, it's like 30 lines of code, JavaScript, and it's like super simple. Most of the code is actually just handling options because line numbers, you can choose like... Padding, I guess, which is probably where left pad comes from. Yeah, padding and the separator and stuff like that. Not the best package I've written. But then on the other hand, I was also interested in regex at the time. Okay. And I had somehow realized that it would probably be possible to write a single regex that can tokenize JavaScript code. Hmm. So like identify all the keywords, all the operators, strings, numbers, etc. Yeah. And it sounded like a fun challenge. So I started hacking on it and I actually managed to do like a regex that in most cases managed to tokenize JavaScript. Wow. And I published that as well as another package called JS tokens, uh-huh. 
And now we're getting close to the actual story, which is <laughs> at the time I also found out about Babel or six to five, as it was called back then. Right. That was the original name. Yeah. Cause it was like transpiling ES6 to ES5 JavaScript versions. Yeah. And when I played around with it, I noticed that the CLI had really nice error messages when I had a syntax error in my code. Mm-hmm. So it printed out the line where the syntax error was, but also a couple of lines before and a couple of lines after with line numbers at the start. But the cool thing was that it did this with syntax highlighting, which I had never seen before. So mm-hmm. it didn't just print it in black and white, like the JavaScript keywords were in some color and the strings were in another color and so on. And that piqued my interest. Like, how did they do that? Yeah. <laughs> so I went to the source code and checked it out, and they were relying on third package called like JS tokenizer or something. Mm -hmm. And I felt like, huh, that sounds like my package, JS tokens. So I I had a look at it and it was also using a bunch of regex and like cobbled things together. And after looking at it for five minutes, I noticed, hmm, I bet JS tokens would produce better output because they have forgotten to take into account certain things and the regexes weren't perfectly matching the spec and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So I decided, okay, I'm going to make a pull request to Babel, swapping out this JS tokenizer for my own package, JS tokens. Uh And I did. And I wrote a PR description showing that, no, now we support ES6 template strings and we handle all of these edge cases and it's going to be real nice. But then at the end, I did something not so good in that pull request. So everything was working. I had integrated JS tokens, but then I realized, hmm, I bet I could use that line numbers package as well. (laughs) Because Ah. as I said, the snippet does have line numbers at the start of each line. Right. Then when I tried to use my package, I realized "Ah, it doesn't really work to do all the things needed for Babel. So instead of just giving up at that point, I decided to extend my package, taking more options and shoehorn in all the things needed by Babel. I see. Okay, so not just line numbers, but even more options than that. Yeah. It even took a function option where you could do basically whatever, which is like (laughs) bypassing the whole library almost. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, that's always like a bit of a red flag to me. And also, here's an option where you can just not even do any of this. Well, then in that case, maybe you could just not call my thing in the first place. But yeah, fair enough. Okay, so let's recap real quick. So You started off, you're 19, you just had an idea, you're bored at this job where you had lots of downtime to think, doing something mechanical. And you came up with this idea for, originally it was line numbers, was that right? Or was it, yeah, okay, so line numbers was first. Line numbers naturally depend on left pad, because what if you wanted to left pad your line numbers? Reasonable thing to want to do. And then separately, you made JS tokens. And then you had done some things better than Babel's own tokenizer that they were using. So you made a pull request to improve that. And then also decided, hey, why not? Let's get line numbers in there because that's a thing that people often want when they're doing syntax highlighting. And then more and more options grew and things got bigger and bigger and more complicated. So did Babel not depend on left pad at all until this PR? Yeah, that's what it is. Oh, wow. You might think that it used it for like printing the JavaScript code that it outputs or something. But it's just like, it's for the line numbers in an error message. That was it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Wow. So Babel had not, even with their own error messages, they did their own left pad or something like that, rather than depending on this left pad implementation? 
the package. Yeah, so, so that's the funny thing. I went back and looked at my pull request from 2016, and uh-huh. the code I replaced with the usage of left pad, no, of the line numbers. Yeah. It's like the same amount of code. <laughs> like what they were doing before. Right. So the package didn't really save. Yeah. Yeah. Save nothing. And even before, they didn't need left pad because if you think about it, they print at most 21 lines of your source code or something. Uh-huh. And the worst case scenario is that the error is on line 98, yeah. which means that you're going to print down to line 90 or something. And then you're going to also print line 99 and 100 and 101. So in the worst case, the numbers are like one character longer. So all you need is a single space of padding. <laughs> yeah, which you do want to fix that. But yeah, also, I mean, the algorithm for doing left padding, it's not a real complicated piece of code. <laughs> it's, not, it's not like you couldn't just incorporate that in your own thing. Something I found myself doing more and more over the years is if there's something that's I could do myself, I'll probably just do it myself. If I'm worried about edge cases and stuff like that, then maybe I'll use somebody else's code. But honestly, oftentimes when I'm using other people's code, I will have a tendency to just say, you know what, this is so simple, I'm just going to copy paste it and add attribution manually. And just have a comment that says like, here's where I got this from, here's the license I'm using it under. Because like, you can do that. It says like, a lot of open source licenses just say you have to give attribution. So I'll say, cool, hey, this came from this person, this is where the URL, this is the license, thank you. And that's it. And if it's something that I don't, anticipate wanting to get a whole bunch of updates for a bunch of new configuration options and so forth. Then the nice thing about that is that it gives me a lot easier control over it. Like if I want to tweak it, I don't have to be like, oh no, do I need to go like fork it and like make a pull request and like debate over the I was like, no, I'll just change it. It's it's in my code base now. It's fine. Yeah, for sure. And actually Babel was using that approach quite a lot at the time. Mm. So they had like a utils folder or something, Mm. a bunch of comma functions. And I had followed the Babel project for a couple of months before I made my pull request. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that there were a bunch of PRs from uh, Sindri Soros, which he's made like a bunch of NPM packages. Yeah. And most of his PRs were modularized. What could it be? Like a Levenstein calculation or uh-huh. modularized string repetition. So he like piece by piece, deleted those utils that were in the Babel repository for using a third-party package instead. Many times his own. Yeah. So he actually was going in the opposite direction of taking, or those PRs were taking in the opposite direction of like, take something that was sort of vendored into the source code and either extract it into its own package or else use a third-party package instead. Exactly. And I guess it makes sense for some of them, like Levenstein, because that algorithm is like, you could easily get it wrong. And I wouldn't feel bad for depending on an NPM package for doing that. But others were very specific, like creating a source map comment, which was like a three-line function. That was also <laughs> extracted to a separate package. Yeah, that's interesting because there's definitely a big unanswered question about what's the appropriate place to draw the line. And I think different people have different answers to this. I think a lot of people will, especially after the left pad incident, a lot of people will say, well, obviously you don't need a dependency for something that small. If it's just only a couple of lines of code, then don't bother adding a dependency for it. And yet at the same time, I also think that culturally, a lot of people feel kind of bad about copy pasting code 
And I wonder if it's partly the attribution thing and just wanting to play by the rules, but I kind of suspect it's more just a, this feels like a beginner thing to do, to like copy-paste code. It's like, oh, I'm just copy-pasting from Stack Overflow and that's not what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to do it properly, which means either write it myself or use something off the shelf. But I mean, it's just code. That's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. And yeah, there. well, in this case, there's a downside that it's funny because there's a almost a confluence of things that had to go wrong for this to become such a big deal. One is that NPM allowed deleting packages, which I don't think any package manager should do because of this reason. <laughs> Secondly, it had to be something that was actually dependent on by a ton of things. And then thirdly, it also had to be something where even though it was so small, people chose to depend on it rather than just inlining it or something like that. If any of those things were different, like if NPM just didn't allow unpublishing packages, then maybe it never would have become this big conversation piece that it turned out to be. Maybe it took this incident for NPM to understand that it is problematic to delete something from the registry. Because since then, you can't do it anymore. Right. Unless, I think you can delete it time-based after you're, you have published it or something. Or maybe, the, oh yeah, so some grace period or something. Like if you just published it, you can change your mind and undo it or something. Yeah. Yeah, could be. If nobody's actually depending on it, that's one thing. But I guess you can't necessarily tell that for sure. You could tell if someone's already depended on it and downloaded it, but you can't necessarily tell if someone's like written the code but actually hasn't run npm install yet. So, yeah, a, I don't know. Personally, I would just say once it's published, it's out there. So the only reason that it would get taken down is if there's some legal requirement to take it down, which hopefully would not happen with a popular package. But I guess that's always possible. But also, I think there would be, hopefully in a situation like that, it would be like you'd only have to take down certain release, not all the releases. But it seems like that's pretty rare. I don't hear a lot of package managers having to take things down for legal reasons and it causing a big issue. Like if somebody makes some package that's just obviously like blatant copyright infringement or some other illegal thing, they're trying to distribute stuff that normally your ISP or somebody else would say, don't host this on our thing. And they're just trying to get it up somewhere. Okay, fine. But if it's something like that, then nobody's going to depend on it because it's just <laughs> the point was to break the law rather than to publish a useful package. So I'm curious. So how do you feel about this experience? Did you think, oh no, I, I blew up the world? Or did you think like, well, okay, there's a confluence of things that had to go wrong or something in between? Or like, how did you feel about it? I don't didn't feel uh, that bad about it. It was more like, yeah, it was a lot of things that happened here. And also, I was a beginner at the time. Yeah. And when I looked at these Babel pull requests, I was seeing a prolific author, Sindri, was making pull requests where he was putting things into separate modules. So I was thinking like, yeah, this is the way you're supposed to do it. Mm. And that's one of the reasons that I wanted to try to modularize line numbers. But also, it, that was also just vain. I wanted to have like a popular package. And here I had the possibility to get two of them popular if yeah. I managed to shoe on two of them into the pull request. So that doesn't feel so good today. Like the reason for Babel depending on left pad was my vanity. <laughs> <laughs> And I also remember when I wrote line numbers, I realized that, oh, I'm going to need left padding here to align the numbers. And I remember that I had read about you can do it the naive way, just make a loop and like add one space each time until you've reached target. Sure. But like the fast way is to, I don't even remember the algorithm, but it's something like you create one space and then you double it and you have two and then you double that and you have four and you can like try to double it as many times as possible. Uh -huh. And then you like uh, do fewer allocations or something like that. <laughs>
On the one hand, that sounds intuitively right. On the other hand, let's talk about specific numbers of spaces here. We're talking about one or two or maybe three spaces. So yeah, <laughs> for line numbers. I mean, for other cases of padding, it might be a different story, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, I should just have written that code and been done with it. But instead, I spent an hour searching on NPM for the perfect left pad package. And I didn't want a package with like a hundred string utils in it. I wanted like right. only left pad. And I remember like finally finding this one and it did what it was supposed to do, but it wasn't like version 0.0.3 or something. Right. But it was getting late that evening and I wanted to finish my package. So I went with it. I installed it. And since it is 0.0.3, MPM actually defaults to locking that dependency to that specific version instead of using a range, which meant that when the left pad package was gone, Babel broke, someone else actually took the left pad name and republished it. Right. But on a different version, unfortunately. Oh. So it didn't help. Babel was still locked into 0.0.3 of left pad, which was a shame. That's funny. I didn't know about that part of the story. <laughs> First of all, it's like scary enough that after someone unpublished something, someone else could republish under the same name. I guess that's fixed by not allowing unpublishing. But it's interesting thinking about to what degree the way that the ecosystem is organized is a matter of culture as opposed to technical constraints. Certainly, the technical design aspect of allowing unpublishing was what caused the thing in the first place. But I think it's fascinating, like your story about why does Babel depend on LeftPad? Babel depends on LeftPad because you made a PR to add your line numbers package, which depended on LeftPad. Okay, but why did you add that PR? Well, because you saw other people who were prominent in the community doing the same thing. And not only publishing PRs that would move code that had been vendored out into separate packages, in some cases, very small packages that were just like 30 lines of code or whatever. So you look at that and you're a beginner. You see, I mean, of course, you're going to like try and do what you see prominent community members doing. That's a totally natural thing to do. So you see them do that and you say, okay, that's what I should do. And also in many cases, it's their own package that they're replacing the inline code with. So you say, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to get my package. And, you know, maybe there's a part of you that's like, oh, this is going to be cool. I'm going to have two popular packages instead of one. But also it's like you literally saw this exact strategy being modeled by a prolific community member. So from a technical perspective, what both of you could have done is just be like, let's just vendor this. Let's make a PR that's just like, here's something that's very tailored to Babel and just like, we'll only use a third party dependency if it's something really complicated that we want to make sure it's well tested and we don't see ourselves wanting to tweak it and we do want to get future updates and all those normal reasons for depending on a package. That was totally permitted by the technical constraints of the problem. It's just that culturally, this is how things ended up. And so that's what you did. And that's what a lot of people do. And I think it's interesting to think about the role that culture plays in how dependable an ecosystem is. It's not just a matter of how is the code written that implements the package manager. It's also what are the cultural norms around how people use it. And unfortunately, I think NPM, in addition to having had in the past problems like the technical problem of allowing packages to be removed, also has the problem of just the culture of depending on lots of little small things and a variety of things beyond that. Yeah, for sure. I think that at that time, the culture of having as many packages as possible and as granular as possible, maybe it peaked around there. Mm -hmm. And since then, we learned that it can actually be more stable over time to have fewer dependencies. Yeah. Now, at the same time, you also mentioned the example of 
you're like, I just need left pad. I don't want to depend on a whole string utilities package. It's got a whole bunch of stuff in there that I don't need and I'm not going to use. I get that. I also have felt that same thing, especially when it comes to things like string utilities and whatnot, where I'm like, I just need this one thing that's not in the standard library or not in whatever first class library I'm using for that particular use case. I just want one more little thing. I don't want to have to go to a separate dependency. Of course, naturally, this also gets into another point of tension that you also alluded to earlier, which is this is also how packages get a ton of configuration options. If someone says, look, I don't want to have to go install a tiny little extra dependency for this, or I don't want to have to copy paste code for this. Can you just add one more thing for my use case? The problem is that everybody's got a different one of those use cases. <laughs> and so if as the package author, you say yes to every single one of those, then cool, you have now prevented each of those individuals from needing to go and supplement your package with some other dependency or copy-pasted code. However, you've also got a ton of configuration options that everybody has to deal with now. There's no easy answer there, I don't think. Going back to the story, so I said that I woke up with uh, emails and GitHub notifications about this left pad incident. And since they had like made a quick fix during the night, I went to work. But as soon as I got home, I made a new pull request to Babel, removing the line numbers dependency and like restored just the simplest piece of code possible to do the line numbers and the code extract. Nice. And that's like been my approach since that I really dislike unnecessary dependencies. I always like try to just inline if possible or do the simplest thing. Yeah. I've been doing more and more of that. Now, granted, I still do depend on plenty of things, but I think a lot more about it before I install something, especially knowing that, I mean, upgrades are, are a little bit of a scary thing in the package world. On the one hand, you always got these, especially I remember in the NPM world back when I used to spend a lot of time there, these security advisories all the time. And also, there's a separate problem with hearing warnings, seeing a lot of warnings, and just knowing these is totally bogus. It would be like, hey, did you know that this package will make you vulnerable to DDoS? It's like, no, it won't. This is for front-end code. Nobody is going to DDoS my front-end. That's not a thing in the front-end. <laughs> doesn't make any sense. And so you just see these over and over again, and you just start to take the warnings less seriously. There's there's a term for this, which I'm blanking on right now, but it's basically just being becoming desensitized to the warnings. And if you have a lot of warnings that are just desensitizing you to that, then you just start to ignore all of them, or ignore them by default, or engage in a workflow that, that, that makes it really easy to just skip over them and bypass them, which is unfortunate because there are actually some very serious security concerns in the NPM ecosystem. And for me, I've been harping on this for years, although I kind of like, I guess, gave up after a while. But the biggest one of which is just scripts. When you install any NPM package by default with the normal NPM configuration that comes out the box, that package that you installed, even if it's just a front-end dependency, can execute arbitrary code on your machine. You're just giving everyone access to run arbitrary code on your machine. It's the biggest code exploit. Every single package, every single transitive dependency you have, you know, however many thousands of those you have, every single one of them, if any one of them gets compromised, they can just execute whatever code they want on your machine. Just completely pwn your whole machine. That's the default setting. I don't think that's a good default setting. You can turn that off, but I know that most people don't. And unfortunately, when you turn it off, some things don't work because they actually rely on those settings. And I remember this is a big thing that I, I spent a lot of time making it so that the Elm installer, when you NPM install Elm, works when you have ignore scripts turned on globally by default, even though it needs to like do some downloading and stuff like that. It was like it would install this little shim that like the first time you ran it would download itself and yada yada. But I had to like 
go out of my way to make that work because normally that's not something that's uh, most people don't have that sitting at table, <laughs> but I did. I wanted it to work. But I think more broadly speaking, there's also a separate concern about just the security of the sort of like always be updating culture where it's like, oh, well, there's a patch release. Give me that. Now yeah, I'll take that, you know, not without really thinking about, okay, is this a patch release from the same person who published all the other releases? Or is this possibly a patch release from someone like a malicious actor who took over their account successfully? Which happens. That's totally a thing that's that's going on now is like, especially the NPM ecosystem is like attackers trying to gain access to popular packages so that they can distribute. I guess it's usually crypto mining stuff, but it really whatever kind of malware they want. Yeah, I mean, it feels good to uh, always be up to date. Yeah, right. Yeah. You have to think about, as you say, if there's something malicious that has happened. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, like operating system updates, right? I mean, I think it's something that sort of conditioned us. They're just like, oh, yes, update. Yes, I would like that. Thank you. But operating system updates are coming from a trusted source. I mean, it's it's the manufacturer of the operating system. Like, you kind of have to trust them because it's it's your whole operating system. But that's not the same thing as just like all these packages that are coming from people you have no idea who they are. Anyone can publish anything and anyone can depend on anything else. And in a lot of cases, even popular packages are accepting pull requests without necessarily vetting them a ton. This is something that I think... It's an instance, security in particular is an instance where I think that technical constraints become a lot more important. Like this is something that I just don't worry about in the Elm ecosystem at all because it's like, well, nobody can run arbitrary scripts. That's not a thing in the Elm package ecosystem. The package manager doesn't let you do that. (laughs) So I could just install whatever I want. Nothing's going to pwn my machine. And even when it comes to minor updates and stuff, there are only certain packages where I possibly need to worry about them doing like crypto mining or something like that, which is if that package is something that can give me HTML or if it's something that can give me a task or a command, then then that's something that can like run an effect and like phone home and like you know send some data back to some server potentially. So they might be doing some crypto mining or they might be trying to like exfiltrate data. But even then, I think the crypto mining is like maybe the only thing that they might do. But trying to steal stuff, steal credentials and whatnot, still would be pretty hard, I think, just using the primitives that Elm exposes and allows you to use in the package ecosystem. And I don't know, there's a lot of peace of mind that comes with that. And I think that's a really underrated aspect of package managers is to what extent do they create guarantees around security as opposed to just sort of hoping that you you know trust everybody and like everything will work out. Another thing about updating packages is apart from security, even in a patch release, you never know like have this package started depending on like three other packages now that I will yep. also depend on. <laughs> I've toyed with the idea that if I ever were to make my own programming language, I would at least try to explore what it would be like if packages couldn't have sub-dependencies. So your application huh. could depend on a bunch of packages, but those packages couldn't depend on anything in turn. And that sounds pretty interesting to me because like, a pretty common thing these days and back in the day for uh, like front-end JavaScript packages was that they would uh, announce themselves as dependency-free. <laughs> and that's yeah. usually like a big pro. I guess back in the day, it was due to like if you had dependencies, then you had to like manually put in the script right. tags of all of them <laughs> into your yeah. HTML. And that was annoying. But these days, it's like you know that, okay, this is what I'm installing. That's what it's going to be. And it's not going to be bigger in the future or like depend on some other malicious package. So I was thinking like, what if you took this to 11 and like only allowed dependency-free packages? 
That's interesting. I mean, there would definitely be some trade-offs there. So one would be you would lose out on code sharing because in some cases, certainly what people would do is they would say, okay, well, I need this code. Here's somebody who's implemented this code. I'm just going to copy paste it in and somebody else would probably do the same thing. And maybe the code is like slightly different because they grabbed it from a slightly different release or, you know, and so you couldn't even like, they're automatically detect the duplication and get rid of it. So you'd probably end up with bigger assets. Also, I mean, there's an interesting cultural question there, which is, I think the answer is no, but like, would people just end up with the same gigantic set of dependencies as before? It's just through copying and pasting rather than through transitive dependencies. I don't think you would. I think they would end up with actually slimmer dependencies because when you actually have to do all that copying and pasting, it is a, a, like annoying and painful. And so I think you would be more hesitant to take on dependencies willy-nilly like that. Now, to be fair, another consideration is that as much as I just complained about the constant updating without thinking about it, it is also the case that sometimes vulnerabilities are discovered in a past release. And it's like, oh, wait, actually, this was, whoops, <laughs> we didn't realize it, but that thing that you used of ours previously actually did have a problem with it, and we fixed it, so you should update to this new one so that you're no longer vulnerable. And that's, I think, more of a back-end consideration than a front-end consideration oftentimes. But, I mean, it is a real consideration. And I think that would probably also be something that's harder to get right in the dependency-free world just because you don't have the, it's not as easy to upgrade, uh, especially if you've only taken copy-pasted part of the thing and and now have a something where you need to surgically go in and, and extract back out the update that contains the security patch into your subset that you copied out. I think I've actually noticed the thing with copy-paste that you mentioned already in the Elm ecosystem. For example, I've seen multiple packages needing a list find function. Oh, sure, yeah. You need to find the first element in the list that satisfies a certain function. And there is no such function in the Elm core libraries. There is, however, one in the list extra package, but packages tend to just copy-paste that function uh, instead of depending on list extra. I think I've actually done that myself. I forget in what package, but yeah, I... (laughs) Yeah, because I don't want to bring on the whole dependency and it's a super simple function. It's like, actually, leftpad is a pretty good analogy for, <laughs> for what that does. It's so simple. Like, why, you know, why, why bring on a whole dependency if you don't have to? Which then I think also gets into another question of how do you want to scope your standard library? Again, it's like another one of those where do you draw the line questions? Like, so you could say, okay, let's put list.find in the standard library because there is a, you know, a number of packages that want to use it. But you can make that argument for a whole lot of functions. And there is a question of, how big do you want the standard library to be? And I think the trade-off there does depend on a couple of different things. So one is, if the standard library is absolutely gigantic, that can be intimidating for people, for beginners, but maybe it's nicer for expert users. But another trade-off, depending on the language, is how does a big standard library affect things like compile times and output sizes? I think in the case of Elm, the output sizes thing is not a problem because it has excellent dead code elimination. And also Elm's compile times are really fast and I don't think they'd be significantly longer if you like made the standard library even like, let's say, double the size that it currently is. But there's a lot of languages where it's like, oh no, please don't do that. Like this is gonna, <laughs> this is gonna cause a bunch of problems for us. So yeah, I, there's a whole pile of trade-offs to consider <laughs> that question too. Yeah, and uh, backwards compatibility. Oh yeah. Usually with the core packages, you have to live with your mistakes basically forever. <laughs> it's yeah, it's a lot harder to make a breaking change to justify a breaking change to a standard library than yeah, to like a package. That's a great point. And another great point along those lines is because of that, there's also a very different threshold, I think, for picking this is the implementation, this is the way to do it. 
And if you're really confident that it's like, this is what everyone should be doing, cool. You can put it in the standard library and then it's like, all right, everybody knows this is like what you're supposed to do. But if you're less confident or you're like, I think there's like multiple different approaches that could make sense depending on use case, maybe you don't want to sort of like pick a winner like that and put it in the standard library. Of course, it's also worth noting that as we've seen in actually NPM is a good example of this, but also I think C++ is a, is a good example of this. If people don't sort of trust the standard library or don't think the standard library is good enough, they'll just kind of make their own. Like in the C++ ecosystem, as I understand it, which I'm not a participant in, I've just heard this, there are alternate standard library implementations like Boost. And Boost is like has all these like data structures and all this stuff that you would normally just get out of your standard library. And a lot of people use Boost instead of the, the sort of the standard one that's like comes out of the, you know, the official committee and whatnot. Similarly, in the JavaScript ecosystem, I mean, this has been true since the very beginning, is that JavaScript's standard library, like the standard tools that have come with it, have been a lot of years were really lacking if you wanted to do more ambitious JavaScript projects. So probably the first, the first like really famous example of this would be jQuery. Like everybody was using it. And then like, okay, so they added a lot of jQuery functionality to the standard library. Now you can have document.query selector, which was not a thing before jQuery. Over time, they've added more and more to that. But of course, there's, and like Promise is another good example. Like there were all these different Promise libraries out there before they sort of standardized that and, and like picked a winner. It's definitely not without its costs to have like an entire ecosystem where people are just picking all these different, you know, alternatives rather than picking a winner. But of course, if you pick the wrong winner, you pick too hastily and you commit to something that people are like, yeah, but this sucks. A, you probably can't easily change it without making a huge breaking change to the ecosystem. Or B, you end up in the C++ scenario where people are like, yeah, that's the standard, but we don't think it's good. So we're just going to use this alternative standard library instead. It's a tricky thing to get right, for sure. Another point of not allowing... uh sub-dependencies of packages is maybe if you want to share a type between different packages. In Elm, there's a caller package that the idea of the package is that different other packages should be able to all use the same color type so they can work together easily. Not just like RGB colors, but also like there's other ways to specify colors than just RGB. And yeah, you might want to specify as like HSL or that's a whole... Long rabbit hole, but yes, okay. But there's one package, the purpose of which is just to provide a type that other packages can, you know, you know, build on top. Yeah. And in Elm, the types are nominal. Is that correct? Yes. Based on their name. Even if someone else creates a type also called caller, it's, that's going to be a different type. But I right. guess that if you had like a structural type system, then everyone could define separate caller types that still are compatible with each other. So I guess this could work out in a new language, but you had to like design for it from the get-go, I guess. Well, so Elm, I mean, Elm supports both nominal and structural types. So if you wanted to, like in Elm, you could say, I'm going to define color to be a type alias of a record that's like RGB are the three fields, and those are all integers, and that's what the format is. And everyone just use that, and then you don't need to depend on anything. You can just make your own type alias called color that has the same thing. You could do that by convention. I think more the advantage of making it opaque is that you might want to change the internal representation in the future. Like you might say, red, green, blue is great for right now, but maybe in the future, there's a reason that you want to change it to like HSL and change it from integers to floats. That's a totally reasonable potential thing you might want to do in the future. And if you've made it opaque, you can do that without breaking everybody's code. Whereas if you commit to the structure of like RGB, yeah, you can share code between packages without having everybody needs to depend on a common thing. 
But if you need to change that, good luck. I mean, it is just like baked in that everybody's using R, G, and B in their integers and that's it. So, I mean, there's definitely a trade-off there. And personally, I would, for something like that, I mean, we've seen over the years, the, the preferred way to represent color has changed multiple times. Back in the day, it used to be like, what, like 8-bit colors and 16-bit colors and like 256-bit colors. And then now it's like 64 millions of colors. And then RGB was the thing. And then like HSL got introduced. And now there's like HSLA. And like colors definitely get more features over time. We've seen that happen. So I think it's a case where I would want to err on the side of, let's try to make it upgradable without breaking this whole ecosystem (laughs) that we built up around it, if possible. But that does mean that you need a centralized package that has it opaque at that level and then can change its internal representation. So changing topics a bit. So we talked a lot about like package management ecosystems and a little bit about languages. So first of all, I want to say thanks for taking on maintaining the node test runner, which I originally created for Elm which you've been doing an excellent job maintaining since I stopped working on it. (laughs) So thanks for that. But also like you've been involved in a number of different programming languages, not just like NPM with JavaScript, but also like CoffeeScript and Elm, of course. And also I think in addition to having contributions to Babel, which is a huge JavaScript code base, you also were maintainer of Prettier, the code formatter for JavaScript. So I'm kind of curious, like how did you get involved in all of these like high profile projects? Like you've made contributions to Babel, You've made contributions to CoffeeScript, like you're a maintainer for CoffeeScript, uh, and like also for Prettier, and also like the Node test runner is like widely used in the Elm ecosystem. Is that something where you're like, hey, I want to like go where the the highest leverage thing is that I can find, or is it more just like just totally unrelated? You just happen to be like, oh, I want to contribute to this, and then one thing led to another, and you found yourself maintaining things. It's usually that it just happened. So when I just learned JavaScript, I ended up. Uh, working a lot with strings and regex and parsing. (laughs) So like that became my thing. I really liked doing those things. So when it came to CoffeeScript, I just like found out about it someday and I found it really interesting. Like, oh, cool. They have made like their own language and it looks a lot better than JavaScript. So I started like hanging out in their issue tracker and uh, saw that there were a lot of interesting uh, discussions going on. Do you remember what year this was? Uh, I think there was this must have been like 2013 or something. Okay, yeah. So CoffeeScript was still quite popular back then, as yeah. I recall. I think, in fact, I think when I was working in 2013, I was writing CoffeeScript professionally. <laughs> that was my job. Yeah, and that's, that's such a weird thing about open source. Like there are big companies using some open source project, but like the people working on it might be beginner teenager that just like found out about it and used to in their, their spare time. Which is simultaneously cool and also like, I mean, it should be a little bit scary. If you have a mental model of when I do Windows update, that is as safe as doing NPM update on my packages. It's not. <laughs> like you might be getting code from not even setting aside the question of is somebody malicious? It might just be this is the first someone's like first intro to programming. They might be introducing vulnerabilities just because they aren't experienced enough to know how to not do that. And it doesn't mean that they're a bad person, but it means that you should be cautious. So, uh, but then like, uh, I started hanging out in their issue tracker, found some bugs, created a few issues. And then I like thought, hmm, this issue that I found is pretty simple. I think I could fix it. So I like went into the code and tried to fix it. And I managed, made my full pr- first pull request. And uh, yeah, by the way, for CoffeeScript, they actually have like a 
wiki page that tells you how the whole thing works and how the different pieces connect together. And that was oh, nice. really good for getting started. So that's uh, something to aspire to, I think, yeah, when making your own projects. Yeah. So then I made like my first pull request. And then I was a bit annoyed that like, why don't they make a new release? I want my, my fix. <laughs> I suggested that someone should have like the job of uh, making a release monthly just to make sure that bug fixes uh, get out in, in time. And the maintainers were like, yeah, I really like that idea, but it takes a bunch of time and I don't think we'll be able to do that. But then they came up with the idea that, okay, I mean, you can just make the release as a pull request and we'll merge it and push it to NPM. And I tried that out and it worked. <laughs> and from there, I like just learned more about CoffeeScript and made more and more advanced pull requests. And eventually I got like uh, commit rights so I could make the publishing myself instead. Very cool. Nice. Okay, so yeah. So I mean, it was just like one thing after another. You start by fixing some bugs and submitting some issues. And then after a while, you end up becoming a maintainer. That's cool. So was Pretty or something similar where you're like, oh, this is a tool that I use. You know, there's like bugs and it's highly string-based and probably a lot of uh, regex-based, I would also guess. At that time, it was more that I had found out about Elm, used it a bit in my spare time. And I had tried out Elm format, ah, which yes. uh, like everyone uses in the Elm community. And I was blown right. away about it. It was like the best thing ever. I'm a Vim user and I like keyboards and I like typing. So I haven't really mind doing all the code formatting and stuff. But when I tried Elm format, I just realized it's such a time saver. Yeah. So when I went back to JavaScript, I was like, ah, this sucks having to do like manual <laughs> formatting. There's got to be something like this for JavaScript. So I went to NPM and like searched and searched and searched, found a bunch of projects. None of them were really maintained. But then one day I saw on Twitter, I think, that like someone has had made a new project and it was like a completely new approach. All the previous projects have just been like some random people just tried to make a formatter. But this one was like, I found this paper where someone had like studied a way of making a formatter, implemented it, and it was really promising. So I was like, Okay, I gotta contribute to this so it becomes a thing. And this was the, I think the paper, if I remember right, so this is James Long who made this, right? Yeah. I think he was at Mozilla at the time, but he's off doing his own thing. I believe the paper was about, if I remember right, enforcing line lengths efficiently. You can set a fixed width of the column and it will efficiently find a way to like pack your code into that if it's possible. Yeah, exactly. That's it. Cool. Okay. So that seemed really promising to you. Yeah. And at the time, James Long was still around and was making heavy progress. And Christopher Shadow from uh, Facebook uh, got involved and he got paid by Facebook uh, for like two weeks or something to just work as hard as he could on it. So it got cool. really good. <laughs> and at that time, I felt like, okay, I let those two do their thing and I can take care of all the boring things like uh, fixing bugs in the CLI or documentation or helping out in the issue tracker. That's so underrated. I wish that that were a more glamorous role because those are the things that impact people's daily usage of either the issue tracker or 
application itself. We have some people who do that for Rock, and I'm so incredibly grateful because it's not flashy, but it makes such a big difference to like the actual end user experience, which is like ultimately the thing that's <laughs> that drives everything. So shout out to you for like doing the unglamorous but really important work. Yeah, and I I also learned that doing like GitHub issues management for a big project is not for everyone. After a couple of years, I learned that I don't think I'm one of those people who are really good at that. Because when a product gets really popular, there's going to be a lot of uh, voices wanting different things. And you need to decide what should happen and what should not happen in, in the project and be able to communicate that in a good way. That's just not my thing. I'm more like a people pleaser. I just want to make everyone happy. But that's like impossible to do when you <laughs> yeah, reach a certain level. I'm really impressed by like uh, the TypeScript team, for example. They have, I don't know, thousands or tens of thousands of issues. And they have people responding to them and closing them. And yeah, I'm really interested in how they manage to have such a good community. That's awesome. I think that's another thing that comes down to culture. It's like even within like a large package ecosystem like NPM, you can have individual projects that are, you know, if they're big enough, then they they develop their own culture and their own norms around things like that. And those can be healthy or unhealthy or, and, you know, positive, negative, and all sorts of different dimensions. And like, that's cool to hear that uh, there was a good one there. And also a key to success in both CoffeeScript and Prettier, I think, is that they like started out with one person created them, but then quickly they had like lots of uh, contributors, which did more things than just like fixing typos. The original authors were quite quick to give commit rights to the next person, and the maintainers have shifted over the years as they have lost interest or lost time or whatever. And they have never like reached the stage where People are making pull requests, but no one is merging them and stuff like that. Yeah, actually, it's the same with uh, your Elm test uh, node test runner package. So, like, uh, there's been a bunch of uh, people contributing, and you've like moved the commit rights over to Harry Sarson, and then like I've come after that, and it's really nice to see like that it's possible to pass the package along as uh, the time goes on. Hopefully, uh, Rock will someday make it to that point where I'm just like, everybody's, uh, there's so many people working on it that aren't me that I'm like, if I wanted to, I could move on, but not ready to do that anytime soon. But, <laughs> but you know, theoretically, someday I'm not, I'm not going to live forever. So at some point, it becomes a question of, can the project continue without one person? And hopefully, that would be the case with Rock as well. I mean, what's been taking all my time, I, I made a conscious decision at some point. I was like, I need to focus on Rock and not on my own projects anymore because I don't I just don't have enough time. But I have been really happy with like how much we've we managed to get that going in rock so far. I mean like at the first, at the beginning, like you said, I mean it was just me. But now I'm very happy to say that I'm not even the top committer anymore. I'm I'm now in second place. <laughs> and we've got like five people with a thousand plus commits each and you go down the line it's like a hundred and some odd total contributors. And yeah, I mean like plenty of them, especially as you get further down the list, it's just like a bug fix here and there or like a documentation change or, you know, something that doesn't require a lot of like in-depth knowledge of the code base. But at the same time, I mean, like we talked about, those are all valuable too. And one thing I've noticed is that it's really hard to predict 
who's going to go from making a couple of minor commits to being a really active and really important contributor to the project. I don't even know how to predict it at all. I thought that I did at some point. I was like, oh, this person's totally going to be. And they're like, nope. They made a couple of commits and then like that was it. And then somebody else is like, I don't know. I mean, this is just a minor thing, but we'll see what happens. And then boom, you know, it's one thing leads to another. They just get more and more and it just, you know, steamrolls. I don't think there's a way to predict it. And it's important to find people where you like feel that you are on the same page. You can like trust them to make changes that you approve of or like are in the same mindset as if you had made them. I mean, at that point, it's like easier to hand them more control. Yeah. But I think it's still good to have the original author's vision and some kind of involvement uh, left. For example, in, in CoffeeScript, the original author, uh, Jeremy Ashkenis, he like uh, stopped uh, writing code after a while, but he, he was still around for us asking questions in pull requests or in issues. And he would come and say like, I strongly feel that we should go with option one and not option two here because this is how I envisioned uh, CoffeeScript from the start. Yeah. Whereas with prettier James Long, he like stepped away after some time and didn't really enforce his vision of it all, which like more or less left the people remaining not quite sure how to make decisions on like uh, what options should there be or which formatting should we choose and so on. That's a great point. Yeah, I, I definitely invested a lot of time in trying to communicate things like that so that there can be more trust. And I think giving feedback early on is really important for something like that. Like especially when someone starts to take on a more ambitious project that's like not just a trivial fix, you know, but something where there's more like design considerations is trying to talk to them not just about the design itself, but also about sort of the philosophy behind the design. And like, here's how I think about this. Here's how I think about that. And hopefully trying to give people an intuition, not just for like, you know, what is the vision and and how to make decisions like that, but also for where to draw the line between like, I should actually put this to the group or put this to Richard or whoever. Like just, I should, I shouldn't just like plow ahead with whatever I think is a reasonable choice here, but rather I should ask about this. And like, you know, ask about it on Zulip or something like that. If people can have a good sense of that, and I can have confidence that people have a good sense of that, then I think at the end of the day, you know, there can be a lot of trust. But it's definitely not something that comes automatically. I think your example about like what happens if the person who created it gets less involved and people aren't sure what direction to go, that can happen even if the person is still involved, but it's just kind of like, well, I'm just going to delegate to people without trying to make the investment in like helping align, you know, our mental models of like what to do and when. That can absolutely happen if I'm just saying, you know, I trust you to make pull requests. You have commit access, you know, do your thing. I'm not going to like review every line of code, which at the beginning I did. Like I would review every single pull request and I did that for a while. But then after all, I was like, okay, I, we're on the same page. We're on the same wavelength here. I don't need to keep doing this. But I think if I had not done that for at least a while and tried to communicate to people along the way, yeah, we could have ended up in the same boat, even though I'm still active in the project of just like people making, you know, commits and landing things. I will say, I mean, to be fair, it has happened a couple of times where I've been using rock and like something changed. And I'm like, wait, why did this change? And also, I I don't agree with this change. But fortunately, it's been like pretty few and far between. And also like, we're never going to get it 100% right. But it's okay. It's software. It's, it's uh, you know, as long as there isn't like a, as long as it doesn't get released, <laughs> you know, in that state, then, uh, then it's fine. It's lots of trade-offs everywhere with all this stuff. Maybe one more thing about uh, CoffeeScript. Okay. 
So uh, one thing I learned there was uh, like the importance of backwards compatibility. I remember like uh, me fixing uh, a bug, or at least according to the creator of CoffeeScript, it was a bug. Uh-huh. I think it was something around like classes in, in CoffeeScript. So in both CoffeeScript and JavaScript, you you have a special method called constructor, which is run when you in- initialize the class right. and can take arguments in, uh, in the constructor. And if you prefix those arguments with an at sign, they uh, automatically get assigned uh, as uh, properties on the class. So it's like a shortcut. The intention was that whenever you wanted to refer to one of those properties, you should just say at and the name even inside the constructor. But due to an implementation detail, if you had like an argument called at age, then you could say just age without at sign inside of the constructor. Ah. That was just like leaking implementation details. Uh Uh, So eventually I made a pull request to fix that because I felt like that was a fun thing to do. Yeah. And uh, it got released, and then we got a lot of uh, issue reports from uh, users of the language that uh, like said, oh, suddenly we have runtime errors all over the place saying stuff no. like age is not defined. And we right. don't have a good way of finding all of those. Oh, that's hard. Yeah. Is that a Hiram's law? That, yeah, like, yeah, right. Uh, eventually, <laughs> every observable thing about software is going to be depended on by someone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there's also, of course, there's an XKCD about this too, where it's like someone fixes the like a bug that like holding down spacebar caused the, causes the machine to overheat. And someone's like, I was relying on that heating source, uh, you know, to heat my room or something like that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but this is a case where I think another interesting factor there is just like how long has it been that way? How many people have been using it and relying on it? Because if it's like you do a release, you realize there's this bug, you fix it in the next release, maybe a couple of people get a couple of runtime errors and they're like, okay, well, I fixed them very quickly. But if it's like been that way for years and there's a ton of people that unintentionally have been depending on this and a a lot of their code bases, yeah, that can be a really scary thing. So what did you end up doing? We just said like, nope, this is the way it is now. Which is something I also learned that like that's not always the best approach. You need to like understand what it's like for actual users of your thing that you built. And eventually someone created like a script. They forked the CoffeeScript compiler and like added temporary code to it that would like find all of those cases uh, mm-hmm. where you have like forgotten the at, at sign and that could be used. But it was mostly pretty badly handled in, in, in my opinion, looking back at it. So you think it would have been better to just reintroduce the bug and just say, this is the design now? Potentially. Depends on how hard it is, I guess, to implement it. I don't remember all yeah. of it anymore. But uh... One of the tricky things about that is that that's also how languages accumulate what people often will refer, will refer to as warts. Is they'll say like, oh, like in C++, you have this like weird behavior in this one. It's like normally at sign means this, but in this one case, or like lack of an at sign does this other thing. And then someone will ask, like, why? That seems like a really weird design. It's like, well, there's this historical thing and we didn't want to break backwards compatibility. And like, it's hard because the more times you do that, the more the language accumulates those things. But on the other hand, if you do insist on breaking people's code in order to keep the word out of language, to fix the bug, to move forward, 
then a lot of people are going to be understandably upset about that and feel burned by that. And also maybe just not even feel comfortable upgrading. Like maybe let's say it's just not worth it. I want to, you know, I want to stay on the previous version that didn't have all these runtime errors. And maybe their use of the language stagnates. It's tricky. I guess that as soon as a product becomes used by a company or a large project, it's important to have a people like a person like that on the project because it feels like on CoffeeScript it was more people just interested in it as a thing to do on their spare time, and then you don't have like the same compassion for the big users, I guess. Well, true, but on the other hand, there's Python two to three, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I guess at the end of the day, if you can pull it off. The best way to accomplish something like that is if you know it's going to break a bunch of people and it is possible to write some automated tool that will reliably detect the cases and fix them for you or at least like give you a way to, on a case-by-case basis, very quickly say yes or no, I want to change this. Some way that you can eliminate, like not reduce the pain to zero, which is the backwards compatibility approach, but say the pain is so low that it's worth it for you to upgrade and let everybody move forward and advance this thing. I think if you can pull that off, that's kind of the ideal way to balance those trade-offs. But it's not always feasible, depending on what the particular issue was. Yeah, totally. I wish it was more common for languages or frameworks and so on to have like incremental upgrades strategies and yeah. or automated upgrade totally. strategies. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, there's always the future. That's something we're definitely interested in. Rock. We'll see if it ends up uh, panning out. Yeah. Cool. Simon, thank you so much. This is great. I, I love all the stuff we talked about and I uh, really appreciate your taking the time. Yeah, this was great. Thank you so much for having me. All right. 